Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. We've had a bit of an extended hiatus here, uh, a lot of excuses for this, including the COVID-19 pandemic, amongst other things. Uh, we like to do these interviews in person, and the COVID pandemic has limited our ability to do this. Um, this is actually the first time doing a Zoom interview remotely. Uh, regardless, it is our intent to get this back up and going and to make it as interesting as possible for our listeners. With that said, we have a fantastic episode for you today. This is a pretty specific topic that focuses on the pediatric ACL and pediatric ACL reconstructions. Now, for the listener, you're probably thinking, well, what's the difference between a normal ACL reconstruction and a pediatric ACL reconstruction? You're probably thinking that most patients who tear their ACL are pretty young, and a large percentage of them are going to be considered pediatric patients. Well, when we talk about the pediatric ACL reconstruction, what makes it different than your typical ACL reconstruction is the presence of open growth plates around the knee. This is largely a technical consideration that is extremely important to appreciate for the orthopedic surgeon doing the surgery because this involves navigating the growth plates to mitigate and decrease the risk of injury to these growth plates. Typically, when we perform ACL reconstruction surgery, we drill tunnels in both the distal femur and the proximal tibia in order to accommodate the ACL graft. In the presence of an open growth plate, drilling across the growth plate might result in injury to that growth plate which might result in either complete growth plate arrest, which would result in a leg length discrepancy, or arrest to a part of the growth plate, which might result in an angular deformity across the knee. Both of these situations are obviously highly undesirable, and therefore it's important to recognize the potential consequences of drilling across the growth plate for ACL surgery in the pediatric patient with growth, open growth plates, or how you might avoid injury to the growth plates by going around them. When it comes to the topic of pediatric ACL reconstruction, I don't think there's anyone on earth that's more experienced to talk about this topic than our guest today. This is Dr. Maminder Coker from Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard University. All orthopedic residents are very familiar with Dr. Coker, uh, mainly the criteria named after him, Coker's Criteria. This is a clinical tool we use for the diagnosis and differentiation of septic arthritis versus transient synovitis of the hip in a young patient who presents with the acute onset of hip pain. In the sports orthopedic world, Dr. Coker is known as one of the world experts in pediatric sports orthopedics and specifically for his large contribution to pediatric ACL reconstruction. Dr. Coker is an associate director of the Division of Sports Medicine and a professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. He is internationally renowned expert in pediatric orthopedics and sports medicine. He has published a number of highly relevant peer-reviewed journals and book chapters on the pediatric ACL reconstruction, including many other topics related to pediatric sports medicine. So with no further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Coker, focusing specifically around considerations to do with the pediatric ACL reconstruction. If you're enjoying our pod podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast. Remember that you can follow us on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, 
and definitely email us with any questions or comments. Uh, the email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Again, we promise to get this up and running again with more awesome episodes coming here in the near future. Thanks, you guys. Welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Min Coker. Dr. Coker is the Chief of Sports Medicine Division and Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Harvard Medical School and Boston Children's Hospital. He has more publications than you can count. He's a prolific researcher. He's made a huge number of notable contributions to the pediatric orthopedic body of literature through his work and research. Something that the that every orthopedic resident knows and can rhyme off in, in residency is the Coker criteria, which is named after him for the differentiation of uh, hip septic arthritis from transient synovitis in the hip. And we are just lucky to, to have him here. Thanks very much for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. We've been, this is, this is a bit new for us. This is the first time we haven't done an in-person interview. We've been trying to uh, organize this for a few months now, but obviously with everything going on with COVID, it's been, uh, it's been difficult, but uh, thanks for, thanks for your time and thanks for doing this. Sure. How's it going up there just uh, in, in Boston right now with, with, with COVID? Yeah, I think we're, we're doing better. I mean, we were hit pretty hard uh, in, kind of uh, when in mid-March through sort of mid-May um, uh, and really shut everything down. So we shut down all elective clinics, um, all elective surgeries. Um, it, what was very apparent to us sort of early on, we had prepared at the hospital, you know, for a, a large influx of patients and repurposed ventilators, uh, some units to be stepped down ICUs, the recovery room um, for ICU beds. But what was pretty apparent was we we just weren't seeing severe cases in kids and adolescents like we were in adults. Um, and so I think we never had more than five kids in the ICU on ventilators. Um, and so, um, you know, that was fortunate. Um, and then starting about mid-May, we started back up with some uh, elective clinics, semi, you know, time-sensitive clinics and surgeries. And now we're, we're probably at about 80% of our normal capacity in terms of um, clinic volume and surgical volume. Okay, great. And, and how long were you guys shut down from doing elective cases? About two months. So it was really kind of mid-March to mid-May. Okay. But pretty much back to normal or at about 80, 90% capacity right now. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, with, you know, with protocols, so everyone's getting the, all the surgical patients are getting COVID tested, um, you know, and their clinic capacity is down. So we don't have busy waiting rooms, um, social distancing, et cetera. So, you know, right. so far we're doing, we've coped and we're, we're kind of back to a new normal. We're just hoping um, we don't see a second wave that, that um, results in, in slowing down again. Right, right. So, I mean, the, 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 the title and what I want to really focus on here is pediatric ACL reconstruction, but, but you are, you're an interesting guy. And, and I think we share some similarities uh, in terms of how we both got into medicine, but if you could just give the listener just an introduction to yourself and, and specifically how you got into medicine and then even more specifically pediatric sports medicine. Yeah, you know, so I think like many orthopedic surgeons, I got hurt when I was in high school. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and uh, tore my meniscus playing basketball in high school. Um, you know, was treated by Ken DeHaven, who who went on to become a, a mentor to me. Um, 
And I just thought it was uh, really amazing that you could get hurt and, and have surgery recover and get, get back to sports. And um, so I think in college, I had had an interest in medicine probably because of that. Um, and then uh, in, in medical school, uh, I was at Duke, um, you know, uh, was mentored by the late John Fagan, who just passed away, um, who, who really um, got me excited about sports medicine. And then in residency, in the Harvard residency program, I was a resident from 93 to 98. We rotated through children's and, and really loved um, the faculty and, and pediatric orthopedics at children's. And so I was sort of stuck um, liking both sports medicine and pediatric orthopedics and thinking I had to you know, kind of choose one or the other. Um, and John Hall and Jim Kasser, who were the chairman at the time, um, really encouraged me to um, kind of do both and, and come back and do pediatric sports medicine. And so I ended up doing fellowships in both of them and, and came back. Um, Lyle McKaylee, um, who, who's my senior partner, um, really sort of started the field of pediatric sports medicine and, at Children's in, in the 1970s, um, 1974. And so came back and joined him and, and have really enjoyed um, you know, watching and participating in the growth of pediatric sports medicine as an area of, of subspecialization and interest. Yeah, that's great. I mean, similar to myself, I was I was up in in Toronto playing rugby for the I think it was the under nineteen Canadian team at the time, and had just chronic dislocations of my shoulder. Ended up seeing Tony Miniacci, who was at Toronto Western Hospital at the time. I'm gonna get uh, I'm gonna get him on the podcast sometime, but he ended up doing sh uh, surgery on my shoulder for a big stabilization, almost like a 360 labral repair. And I just remember at that point, sort of, I, I had kept in touch with them and ended up shadowing him a bit during medical school. I, I still keep in touch with him, but similar to your story where a big injury sort of led you towards the world of sports medicine and seeing, seeing you know, what that can do to, to help someone who's trying to get back playing, I guess. Anyways, that's uh, that's 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 all fantastic. We we actually I met you a few years ago, almost almost about eight years ago now. I was actually I interviewed with you back at the for the Harvard uh, Peds uh, Fellowship after after residency at University of Toronto. So I met both you and Dr. McKaylee then, and uh, yeah, I mean, fantastic program and the the amount of literature that you guys churn out to do with ACLs and everything Peds sports is 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 just fantastic. Anyways, that gets us on to what we want to start talking about today, and that's that's pediatric uh, ACL injuries and ACL surgery in pediatric patients. So I'd like to sort of, for, for anyone listening, cover pretty much everything and ask every question that we can that we can answer to do with, with ACL reconstruction and surgery in pediatric patients, starting with the diagnosis of these injuries, um, the determination of, of how much growth is remaining, whether it's by tager, uh, tanner staging or chronologic age and, and what your considerations are when you, when you see a young patient with an ACL injury. Then we'll move on to some surgical uh, considerations, look at physial sparing ACL reconstruction techniques, transphysial ACL recon with physial respecting techniques, a partial transphysial or a hybrid technique. And then I also would like to hear your thoughts on ACL repairs and where you think this is going. And then finally getting onto the rehab and post-op considerations following these injuries and return to play criteria. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds very comprehensive, Andrew. 
Good. So just starting with a, a, a young patient who pre presents to your, to your clinic, perhaps they've had some sort of a twisting injury in their knee and prevent with, with uh, instability episodes and, and maybe an effusion. Take us through your, your diagnosis criteria of these inju injuries and what you're thinking about. Yeah. So, you know, that's a frequent presentation. And I think one thing to remember just off the bat, it wasn't that long ago, probably 1980s, even early 1990s, when, when we used to think that um, kids didn't get ACL injuries frequently, that they, right. they would get a tibial spine fracture, not a mid-substance tear. So we, we certainly know that that's changed. And so I think that should be on your mind and in your differential diagnosis. If I see a child, you know, with a twisting injury and a pop and a swollen knee, um, ACL is definitely on the differential diagnosis. Um, so is tibial spine. So I think getting x-rays is, is very useful uh, in these patients. I think sometimes, you know, um, we tend to cheat and, and just head to an MRI scan. But sure. um, I think in kids, um, getting x-rays is very important because um, you can see a tibial spine fracture. Um, it gives you a sense of, of where they are with their growth, with their growth plates as well. And you can see other things you don't expect like uh, OCD, osteochondritis, um, Dissecans lesion. And then the third thing to think about, I think that sometimes we forget is a um, patellofemoral dislocation. And the peak age of patellofemoral instability is actually in adolescence. And so uh, a kneecap dislocation also can, you know, be a pop, twisting injury, swollen knee. Um, so don't, don't only think ACL or tibial spine, you know, keep in mind patellofemoral dislocation as well. Sure. And just on that, just with the plain x-rays of the knee, an AP and a lateral, what are you looking for, particularly, you, you probably know where I'm getting to, on the, on the lateral radiograph, which might help you determine where this child is in terms of their growth remaining? Yeah, so I think you can get a sense on the, on the AP lateral x-rays of their growth plates, how kind of wide open they are versus, you know, are they narrowing and closing? Um, the tibial tubercle apophysis, I think, is, is very useful. Um, and the apophysis really goes through four stages of development. One, where it's completely cartilaginous. The second stage, where it's a bony apophysis, um, but it's not attached to the epiphysis yet. The third stage is the apophysis and the epiphysis fuse, but the proximal tibial physis is open. And then the fourth stage is, is sort of everything fuses. Um, and we actually just did a study looking at um, skeletal age as determined by Tanner uh, and um, uh, hand radiographs, so Grulick and Pyle uh, method compared to their tibial tubercle stage. And stage one and two, that's the cartilaginous apophysis and the bony apophysis not fused with the epiphysis. Um, those represent prepubescent patients. And, and the third stage, when you've got the epiphysis and the apophysis fused, but the physis open represents a, a pubescent stage. And, and to us, that's one of our breakdowns in terms of going, you know, um, physial sparing, growth plate sparing versus um, physial respecting in terms of reconstruction. So on that note, is there any, do you, do you, do you guys just use that or do you do the hand x-ray for Grulick and Pyle staging and Tanner staging, or is it good enough just to use the knee radiographs looking specifically at the, uh, the lateral at the tibial uh, apophysis? Yeah, we, we do get um, 
hand left hand x-ray Grulick and Pyle Atlas for skeletal age uh, on almost all of these patients. Um, and then we also get a um, standing AP hips to ankles x-ray to assess their leg length um, discrepancy, if any, in their angular alignment um, uh, pre-treatment, so pre-surgery. Okay. Um, I think sometimes there can be a difference in terms of, you know, how you manage a patient um, just routine clinically versus um, when they're in a study where we're just stopped and rowing in our big multi-center pediatric ACL study called Pluto. And in Pluto, all the patients would get a hand x-ray um, for skeletal age. They would get a tanner stage, uh, and that was a self-tanner stage done by the patient confirmed at surgery. Um, and then we got the uh, x-rays, including the AP standing hips to ankle um, okay. x-ray. But I think the hand x-ray and, and certainly the pre-op hips to ankles are important to keep in your, in your regimen. Okay. So, I mean... For anyone that hasn't looked at this, I, I actually have this printed off. I keep it behind my desk here for whenever a, a youngster comes in with an ACL, but it's your paper. Uh, it's Peter Fabricant and, and you, Current Concepts Review Management of ACL Injuries in Children and Adolescents. It's published in JBJS in 2017. And it, just this chart is, is phenomenal. And I sort of use this every time I see a kid to, you know, where they fit into this, this algorithm here. And that is 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 basically subdivides them into prepubescent patient and then an adolescent patient. But you use here Tanner staging one and two versus greater than or three and greater Tanner stage, and then also chronologic age where you where you say males less than twelve, females less than eleven as the prepubescent. But I guess it, that that this chart is not using the the hand X ray or or the tibial apophysis. Yeah, so the Tanner stage, you know, would give us the um, prepubescent Tanner stage one and two versus pubescent yeah. Tanner stages three and four early and late pubescence, and then Tanner stage five, which is really skeletally mature. And then the, um, the less than equal to 12 in males um, for prepubescent breakdown is really based on their skeletal age. So it's based on their Grulick and Pyle age. Sure. Okay, great. So back to our diagnosis then. So you get these x-rays, you see that their, their growth plates are, are wide open. Let's say they're skeletally immature. They don't have a tibial spine fracture. So ACL is maybe top of your list. MRI next? Yeah. So I think MRI is very helpful then. Um, that'll confirm your diagnosis in terms of uh, ACL tear. I think sometimes in, in kids, um, we do see partial ACL tears more than we see in adults. Um, I think in adults, when we see a partial ACL tear, it's often functionally a, a, a complete tear, meaning there's a pivot shift and we're doing a reconstruction. I think in kids, um, they can get a partial tear where they have a, a increased Lachman, but it still has an endpoint and they don't have a pivot. Um, and we did a prospective study on that type of patient and found that about 70 percent of them actually did well with non-surgical treatment and ended up not needing reconstruction, um, and 30% did. So I think that's a little bit different in, in kids and adolescents than in adults. But, you know, you get an MRI, and usually it's a complete tear of the ACL. You often see a similar bone bruise pattern in the lateral knee that you see in adults. Um, and then uh, meniscal tearing is very common. So about 
50 to 60% of patients will have a meniscus tear, um, skeletally immature in association with the ACL tear. Um, chondral injuries tend to be less common uh, than in adults. Got it. So this is sort of getting then into now the, the next sort of consideration. And I suppose we sort of started this for the, the maybe average listener who, who might be a patient or a mother or father of a, of, a, of a kid with an ACL injury. But the reason why this is a topic and why this gets so much attention, the pediatric ACL reconstruction is because of the growth plates and, and the, 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 the pediatric patient is different from the adult patient in that their growth plates around the, the femur and the tibia are still open. And in ACL reconstruction, we, we typically have to drill tunnels for the, the new ACL to go in. And that those tunnels that we drill typically cross the, the growth plates and the physes. And this can lead to a problem as you, as you could probably imagine, if this leads to growth arrest across one or both of the physes where you could end up with maybe a leg length discrepancy between your surgical and non-surgical leg, or maybe an angular deformity if one side of the growth plate is, is disturbed and there's a considerable amount of growth remaining. So once you've made this diagnosis here with a, with a pediatric patient who has open growth plates, I suppose the next question that we're asking ourselves is how much growth is remaining? And that can help delineate our treatment algorithm and put the patient into the appropriate group, which determines which surgical reconstruction technique we're going to utilize for them. Right. Agreed. I think that's, that's important background information, Andrew. What do you, what, what next? So we, we see on their plain radiographs that the patient has open growth plates. How are you, we've talked a little bit about, uh, about it, but let's say that this is a young sort of Tanner stage one or two patient. Um, So they've got a considerable amount of growth remaining. And I'm, I'm leading you down a path here to this ACL, physial sparing ACL reconstruction technique, which I suppose you've, you've got maybe one of two main options, and that's either an, an iliotibial band uh, ACL reconstruction, the IT band technique, which is completely physial sparing, and we'll get talking about that, but also these physial sparing ACL reconstruction techniques where we're drilling our 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 typical tunnels, well, not typical, but we're drilling tunnels in a way that maybe navigates around the, the growth plates to avoid them. Right. Yeah. And I think even before that, Andrew, you know, one um, treatment option, and this actually was very common in the 90s and, and probably, you know, to th- in the early 2000s um, in this patient population. So one option, you know, would be non-surgical treatment. So that would right. mean you know, treating the, the child with physical therapy, putting them in a brace, um, keeping them out of uh, sports and activities until they're older uh, and have less growth remaining and then doing an ACL reconstruction. So that was a, a pretty frequent recommendation. In fact, that we've done some surveys um, through the Herodica Society and, and other groups, and that was probably the most frequent recommendation in the 1990s and early 2000s. Right. Um, and what our studies and, and many others showed um, was the prognosis was not great with non-surgical treatment. These kids um, would had very unstable knees um, and they'd go on to tear their meniscus and articular cartilage. And that was you know, very meaningful in terms of their risk of early arthritis. Um, and even if you kept them out of organized sports and activities, just because they're young and active, free play in the backyard at recessed, um, they were at high risk to tear their meniscus and articular cartilage. So, 
you know, I still have that uh, conversation with families and occasionally you find a, you know, kid that had just sort of a freak injury and they're not very athletic and the family's very risk averse and they want to try non-surgical treatment. And so I still think that might be an option in some patients, but I think the vast majority of patients, these young kids injure it in sports. They want to get back to sports and activities. Keeping them out of sports, you know, has risk of injury to the meniscus, like I just mentioned, but also uh, is very psychosocially challenging for the kid and the family to try to keep them out of sports if they're 12 until they're 16, say for a boy when the growth plates fuse. So typically we are recommending surgical treatment. For sure. So, so on that note, then how, how are you making, cause I, you, you, you guys have published a, a ton of research. There's a, there's a big paper you presented. It was, it was published in JBGS in 2005, looking at your IT band ACL reconstruction technique with, with fantastic results. How are you deciding between an IT band technique versus say a physial sparing ACL technique where, where you're drilling tunnels? Yeah, so it's really based on their um, skeletal and physiological age. So the the prepubescent group, so these are Tanner one and twos, you know, these are kids who have a cartilaginous or just a bony apophysis at the tibial tubercle. You know, they don't have um, really pubic hair. They're not shaving, no axillary hair. Um, their skeletal ages are usually 12 and younger in boys, 11 and younger in girls. So in that group, you know, we, we need to recognize they have a lot of growth remaining. Um, I mean, some of these kids are, you know, four foot something and they're going to be, you know, six foot. Um, and so they have a lot of growth remaining. And if you do go transficeal across the growth plates in these patients, that has been described um, in some studies. George Paletta, uh, Leo Pazuski from Australia, um, uh, with some good results. However, when they have a growth disturbance and, and these growth disturbances have also been described and we see them, they tend to be very severe. So a big leg length discrepancy, angular deformity that requires really complex reconstruction like lengthening with angular correction with a tailored spatial frame. So these are, are sort of big complications. Big problems. So big problems. that's the group, the prepubescent group that we recommend a, a physial sparing reconstruction. And I think really the two options uh, in, in that group are a physio sparing reconstruction that we've described with the IT band that's both intraarticular and extraarticular, or um, tunnels that are epiphyseal with a soft tissue graft, usually a hamstrings. So you're drilling a tunnel within the epiphysis on the femur, a shallow tunnel within the epiphysis on the tibia, um, and so I think those are the two sort of main treatment options. Do you have a preference for one or the other? Yeah, I, I, our preference and my preference has been um, the IT band reconstruction. We've done that, you know, since the 1980s. Um, and we have a lot of uh, experience with that. Um, the advantage of the IT band reconstruction is it's intraarticular and extraarticular. So um, the extra articular, you know, we were puzzled as to why um, the success rates were so high with this technique, lower than, you know, like adolescent ACL reconstruction with hamstrings. Right. Our failure rate in the first paper, 2005, 44 patients was 4.5%. And in the 2018 patient paper, which was 240 knees, the failure rate 
revision rate was 7%, um, which is lower than, than adolescent and even adult ACL reconstruction. And, and uh, it turns out that that extraarticular portion was reconstructing the ALL. And so now there's a lot more interest in ALL extraarticular techniques in combination with intraarticular techniques. But I think that's an advantage um, uh, of this technique. Um, and again, our success rates have, have been very high. I think the epiphyseal tunnel technique, Alan Anderson described that originally. Um, and I think that is a, a good technique as well. The advantage there is that you can get more anatomic on the femur um, because you're not in the over the top position. Um, you know, downsides are that um, it's, you have to be careful technically because if you err a little bit proximally, you could skive the physis. Right. If you err a little distally, you can injure the subchondral bone. Um, the, the, on the femoral side, it takes a big turn, the graft does, uh, almost like we worry about the killer turn on the PCL. And on the tibial side, it, it's quite a shallow tunnel. Um, you know, uh, some of the data would suggest that epiphyseal tunnels um, for ACL and, and other reasons in pediatric orthopedics stimulates the physis and you can get overgrowth. And so there are a number of papers showing overgrowth of the leg um, with that technique as well. Um, whereas we haven't really seen cases of growth disturbance with the IT band technique. Great. And, it, and, and then the next thing here is at what point do you, do you switch to a transphyseal ACL reconstruction um, with, you know, these so-called physeal sparing techniques? Yeah, sort of physeal respecting techniques. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be once they're pubescent, so sort of Tanner stage three and four. Um, so these are now males who are, you know, 13 to 16, females 12 to 14 or 15 with open growth plates. They've hit puberty, so the females have started to have periods. Um, females in general will grow about two years after they start having periods. Um, the boys are, are now developing signs of secondary sexual um, development. And so once they're pubescent, then we do, uh, you know, and on the tibial tubercle apophysis, the apophysis is now fused with the epiphysis. So typically in that um, group, we now are going um, physeal respecting. For us, that's been transphyseal on the femur and on the tibia with fixation away from the growth plate. So typically suspensory fixation on the femur and an interference screw or a post on the tibia um, below the physis. Um, I think another option there uh, is the hybrid technique or the partial transphyseal technique. So in that technique, you can do an epiphyseal tunnel in the femur and a transphyseal tunnel on the tibia because that shallow epiphyseal tunnel on the tibia is, is technically challenging. So I think those are all viable options as a physeal respecting type of technique in the pubescent patient. And you guys have, you know, like, like most things in pediatric ACLs, you've, you've published on this. There was a paper, um, JBJS, 2007, 59 patients. I think the average age was 14, 14 and a half or so, all transphyseal ACL reconstruction with, again, great results. Yeah, so that's worked well. And we haven't seen, you know, cases of growth disturbance with that. We did report on a series of, of growth disturbances um, with transphyseal reconstructions that were collected from a survey of, of Herodicus and ACL study group. And 
when we looked at those cases, you know, they, they were really technical issues. So sort of bone plugs across the physis with patellar tendon grafts or hardware across the physis. Um, and so I think a, a soft tissue reconstruction across the physis with fixation away from the physis um, in a pubescent patient, um, I think is a low risk, um, a low risk surgery. And you're always using a soft tissue graft for these. Right. So we typically would use hamstrings. I think you could use quad tendon as well. Um, we don't uh, typically use allograft um, in younger patients because of the concerns about higher failure rates um, than, than autograft. At what, when do you think if you're doing a transphysial ACL, are you thinking about reconstructing the ALL and what's your, what's your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think that's in, you know, in evolution, I think with, um, you know, more data coming out, the Santee trial, which showed lower revision rates with intraarticular and extraarticular ALL reconstruction, um, we're really looking at that. Um, in this population, this adolescent population, um, whether they're skeletally immature hamstrings or even skeletally mature hamstrings, um, that's a population we're looking at. So personally, when I'm doing a hamstring ACL reconstruction, particularly uh, in a patient who has generalized ligamentous laxity or a lot of hyperextension, to me, that's a group um, that I've started to do ALL reconstructions on. I think another place to think about it is the revision setting. Um, but this group, the adolescent patient population, you know, if you look at results, has the highest risk of um, graft failure. And so that's probably the group where we want to be thinking uh, of extra articular procedures as well. And you, you talked about it briefly, but we should probably just spend a second here talking about it. And that's on allografts. I think everyone who understands the literature knows that there's an extremely higher failure rate with using allograft tissue, allograft meaning a cadaver tissue. So for, for, for in the context of pediatric ACL reconstructions, one of the, one of the uh, physial respecting techniques is used a soft tissue graft. That's a hamstring autograft. The reason being that using a bone patella tendon bone autograft places bone across the physis, which could potentially um, cause a problem or exacerbate the problem. Um, but you 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 mentioned that in uh, for allograft, which is which is cadaveric tissue. Everyone sort of seems to have an opinion of this, and 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 patients hear different things. What are what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think there isn't a much indication for using allograft for ACL reconstruction and in kids and adolescents. I think it's the failure rate is just higher, and that's been shown in you know multiple studies, um, you know Moon um, prospective cohort studies. That's been shown in registry studies from Scandinavia and, and from Australia, um, and so we don't tend to use allograft very often. Um, the one place, you know, might be a multi-ligament type of injury, which is less common in kids and adolescents. But, you know, if you're doing an ACL and a PCL and a posterior lateral corner, it's just too much tissue to get um, from the patient without substantial morbidity. Right. 
And then in an older patient, let's say you're a 16 year old boy who comes in, who's torn his ACL and has minimal or no growth remaining. Do you have any, any thoughts on maybe the debate of BTB versus hamstring? What's your, what's your favorite graph to use? Yeah, it, it depends a little bit on the athlete. So I think if you've got, you know, a large um, collision sport athlete, football, rugby, um, uh, I think BTB, you know, has a lower failure rate. It, it may have other issues, patellar tendonitis, you know, pain with kneeling, um, stiffness. Um, but I think that's a reasonable option. So I talk about hamstrings versus BTB with the with those families. Um, similarly in females, I think, uh, you know, kind of large athletic, uh, soccer player collision sport females, um, might do better with BTB as well. Um, you know, at our institution, we have, uh, once the growth plates are closed, you know, we have people doing BTB, we have people doing quad tendon, we have people doing hamstrings. Um, so I think all of those are, are reasonable options. So the last thing I suppose on this list with ACL, uh, ACL surgical technique considerations would be the, the repair. So I guess to, to take a step, step back for the, for the listener, a long time ago, maybe pre nineties or early nineties, we used to think that repairing the ACL was, was the, the better option. And then more recently we've gone, well, in the last 30 years, we've gone away from that, knowing that the results were, were never very good repair, meaning that we're trying to utilize the torn tissue to recreate or repair the ACL rather than just doing away with the, with the old ACL and reconstructing it with, with some other tissue. Now, more recently in the last couple of years, we've been seeing a lot more literature come out on the ACL repair and sort of ACL hybrid repair techniques where you're utilizing some sort of a biologic to try and complement the repair and improve the result of the repair tissue working. I know you guys have published a little bit on this, but what are your, what are your thoughts and, and where do you see this going in the future with, with ACL repair? Yeah, I think it's kind of exciting. I think I think it's not there yet. We don't we don't really know. Um, you know, I think it's different than primary repair in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, this is now um, in the era of of bio enhanced um, ACL repair, and so uh, Martha Murray from our institution has been working on this for now, you know, over 30 years and has at the highest level with NIH grants and um, uh, uh, FDA trials. Um, but, you know, her technique is called the BEAR technique. So it's bio-enhanced ACL repair. It involves putting stitches in the stump of the ACL uh, and a bioengineered sponge that's then injected with whole blood. Um, and she developed that in a pig model uh, and the data were very compelling. And so, um, the rates of healing were high. And, and what was really interesting and compelling is that the rates of arthritis were much, much lower than transecting the ACL um, and having an unstable knee, but also much lower than ACL reconstruction in the pig model. Um, and so if you can get the body to heal its own ligament, you know, that that may be better than, than our reconstruction techniques where we're trying to figure out where to put it, where's the anatomic position, how much tension, what graft to use, how to fix it. Um, so I think that's kind of exciting. Martha 
um, what did a phase one trial um, safety efficacy and then did a um, single institution um, case series. And then the third study was a single institution randomized trial um, with promising results. I think those results are out to two years now. Um, and the next step is following those results past two years uh, and a multi-center um, trial that's gonna be done through the Moon Network. Um, so I think these are all data to, to kind of watch. Uh, I think in this population, um, the pediatric adolescent patient population is probably the group where it may have the most um, importance because the cells are just much more biologically active. And so, you know, kids can heal things, adults can't heal with fractures, soft tissue kind of across the board. Uh, and so this is an exciting group to, to watch the results in. Do you think that, you know, the pendulum sways pretty quickly with new innovations like this, where I think, you know, we, 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 we think about a new technique coming out and then the, the indications for that technique are stretched. And then some of the literature is, is biased because you're maybe selecting patients that shouldn't been, shouldn't have been selected for, for a repair, for example, and that that sort of biases the literature because the results that come out aren't as good as maybe you would have had expected if you had selected the right patient group. But it sounds like you're a believer in this. Do you think that this is, this is something that we're going to see more and more of over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I think we will. I think it'll probably end up, you know, like most things, a lot of enthusiasm. And then I think, um, you know, some of the results, uh, you know, may not be as good in certain patient populations. And so I think there'll be some refining uh, of the results. But I think it is, it is fundamentally a different um, technique and a different biology than, than primary repair that was being done in the 1980s and 1990s. But, you know, John Fagan's work in the 1980s and 90s on primary repair, those patients actually did very well in the short term at one year and even two years. And then the failures really were after that. So that's why I think the longer term follow-up in this population is very important. Right. And just for the, for the surgeons that are listening for just technical points, if you're doing a transphysial soft tissue with the physial respecting techniques, what are you, what are you using for your fixation? So typically on the femur, it's suspensory fixation. So I use the endo button. And on the tibials, that's a closed loop endo button. Correct. A closed loop, 15 millimeter um, closed loop endo button. Um, I'm drilling my femoral tunnel through the anterior medial portal. And that's interesting to think about. I think back when we drilled trans tibial, so through the tibial tunnel, that gave you a more vertical graft. That actually might have been um, better for the physis because you, it's a less of a cross sectional area across the physis. When we're right. going, anteromedial or you're going outside in with a flip cutter uh, or something, you are coming more obliquely across the physis. And so the cross-sectional area across the physis can be greater. And right. so it's important to, when you go anteromedial to realize how oblique you are across the physis, x-ray I think can be very helpful uh, in that situation. Um, but now typically we're drilling from the anteromedial portal, um, slightly obliquely across the physis fixation away from the physis with suspensory fixation, closed loop endo button. Um, and then on the tibial side, um, we're drilling a tunnel. It's usually a 50 degree angle. Uh, and that typically will give you room below the physis. So in the metaphysis, 
for an interference screw, like a 20 to 23 millimeter interference screw. Um, if it looks like that screw is going to cross the physis, then, you know, you can use a post or some other uh, type of fixation on the tibia. So two, two sort of just points or questions on that. I'm, I'm, I do the exact same thing. I, I use a closed loop endo button. I try and use the 10, 10 endo button whenever I can just to maximize the amount of tissue in the graft, which I think is maybe helpful. So I always try and do the math to get the tunnel distances right for the, for the 10. Um, the other thing is I, I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts, but I maybe go even a step further. I'm always drilling my femoral tunnels through an anteromedial portal, but for these specific operations, I've started using, um, the curved dreamers by Smith and nephew, because I think it can get me a more vertical tunnel while still starting in the anatomic origin of the, on the, on the femoral side. Yeah, the, that's the reamers I use as well on the femoral side. And, and I think you're right. I think you can get you can start in the anatomic position uh, and then you can have less of a cross section across the physis. Right. And then they actually, the Smith and nephew also has this, it's, it's a pretty neat, it's like this spiked washer where you put a, um, not a, 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 a can screw through the washer. Um, and it has those two sort of holes at the top where you can, I, I always use a quadruple tendon. I take semi T and gracilis, double them over the endo button. And then you've got about eight loops of suture coming through where you pass them through the washer and then take it distal to the physis with a, with a uh, cancellous screw with a single unicortical screw, which, which I find works great. Yeah. So I think that's very safe because you've got suspensory fixation there on the tibia that is, um, you know, not going to cross the physis. Good. So moving on then, the, the, so post-ACL reconstruction, talk us through briefly your just overall outline, maybe from like day one to return to sports, just to give us an outline of what you're doing with these patients post-operatively. Yeah, I think the um, IT band reconstruction rehab is a little different than the like transficeal um, hamstring reconstruction. So in the IT band, you know, these are younger kids. And so we're, we're just going a little bit slower. Um, and they're typically on crutches for four weeks after surgery. The hamstring patients are usually on crutches for two weeks after surgery. Um, I use a post-op brace on the, um, the IT band patients for six weeks after surgery. It's a little shorter in the hamstring ACL reconstruction patients. Um, we do get them moving right away because stiffness can be a problem. Uh, even in this group, we found that stiffness in the prepubescent patients is less frequent than the adolescent patients, but it can still happen. And so we want to get them moving right away. I don't typically use a CPM. Um, and then they, they undergo a progressive rehab program and they kind of converge, you know, at about three months, um, they're doing some jogging and running. Um, and then we uh, um, do some functional testing, usually at six months. Um, after surgery to see if they're ready to return to sports. Um, and interestingly, you know, the hamstring patients um, typically have a, a, still have a substantial hamstring strength deficit and some functional issues, hop, et cetera, at six months. So I would say most of our hamstrings were returning to sports at nine months or, or even longer. Um, and then these young kids with the IT bands at six months, their numbers are just great. They have really no um, no strength deficits. And that's because, you know, the IT band isn't so much of a muscle. So we're not compromising the hamstrings or the quad like you would with a patellar tendon. 
Um, and then they're just little kids. They, they get back pretty quickly. And so I'd say most of the IT band reconstructions are going back to sports at about six months after surgery. And how, on that note, how do you, how do you evaluate a, a pediatric patient's readiness to return to sport? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's sort of typical stuff in clinics. So it's, you know, how they're doing in terms of their symptoms, um, how they've done with their therapy progress. You know, they, they will come in with their therapy notes. Um, and then on exam, you're checking their motion, um, the stability of their knee. Um, so their Lachman, their pivot and McMurray's maneuvers. So you're getting a sense in the office. And then we, we have a, a youth sports injury prevention center called the McKaylee Center uh, in, in two locations now. Um, and so we have those patients seen at the McKaylee Center before they see us and they come with their knee report card. And that is range of motion, it's thigh circumference at different levels, um, it's quad hamstring strength, um, hip abductor strength, um, and then it's some wide balance tests uh, and then some functional tests like hop tests, drop landing tests. So that's how we're getting a score kind of on them to see if they're ready to return to sports. And I mean, this is, this is with every ACL reconstruction, this is, this is a problem, but you see it more in children and adolescent patients, particularly in the female cohort. And that's this, this problem with re-rupture and even uh, contralateral ACL tear. How do you, how do you predict this? I know this is a tough, tough question to answer, but how do you predict the patient that might have a problem with this and, and what do you do about it? Yeah, so I think the, um, you know, certain patient populations, so I think like you said, the adolescent female patient population, that's probably our highest risk group um, for re-rupture. So in those patients, you know, we may wait longer, nine months to 12 months. We really look at their functional testing. I think that's the group to look for uh, in terms of potential ALL reconstructions uh, as well. Um, and then I think it's, you know, getting them through physical therapy, but then having them continue to work with strength conditioning, injury prevention type of programs. And so, you know, at the McKaylee Center, uh, centers that we have, we also run ACL injury prevention programs. So many of these kids stay um, in those programs, you know, well into two years after reconstruction. Um, and that's uh, to try to reduce the risk of re-injury to their operative knee, but also the contralateral knee, which has, you know, a substantial risk of, of injury as well. Are you typically quoting patients? I know you've mentioned it a couple of times, but around nine months as your sort of benchmark for return to sports? Yeah, I think if you say not, I usually do say nine months and, you know, if you know, particularly like the IT band patients, if they're ready to go back at, at six months, you know, they're, they're kind of thrilled. Uh, whereas if you tell them six months and keep them out right. for nine months, then they get, they get a little bit sad about that. Right. Right. I don't know. I don't have too much else. Is there anything else that we're missing? No, I think, uh, you know, a couple of the, the, uh, interesting things we're kind of, you know, looking at it, one is just prevention from, from the outset. So right. before trying to get to these athletes before they even get injured. And, um, you know, if we look at the numbers, say if you look at the numbers of ACL reconstructions done in the US, the peak is actually in the late teens and, and early 20s. And so if you wanna um, prevent these injuries, you really gotta 
get to them in the early teens or now that we're seeing them in early adolescence, you need to get to them in prepubescence. Um, and the injury prevention programs, you know, have really compelling data in terms of risk reduction for ACL tears. And so that's something we're, we're, we're really trying to do. Another area we're really interested in as well is sort of um, readiness to return to sports and mental skills. Um, you know, and a lot of these patients have a, a fear of re-injury uh, or when they tear their ACL, they, you know, they get really sad. They can have an adjustment disorder or, or depression. And so kind of um, recognizing the, the mental uh, and psychosocial impact that the injury has on them, I think is important. And then when we're returning them to sports, you know, talking and working through these issues about fear of re-injury, uh, I think are, are really important as well. And, and maybe even more so in the kids and the adolescents. So that's, I mean, that's a fantastic point. Hopefully for the parent that's listening to this, it's not, it's not too late. The best, the best treatment for an ACL injury is, is maybe preventing the ACL injury in the, in the first place, kind of like a vaccine. So as you mentioned, some of the data on this stuff is, is compelling. It really, really does work. Yeah. For, for meniscal injuries at the time of surgery, anything different that you've maybe changed to over the last few years, moving maybe to more all inside methods versus like an inside out or, or outside in technique? Yeah, I think that it's a really good question. And I think that that it's becoming more and more clear that, you know, the results long-term are really related to the meniscus yeah. uh, and, and the risk of arthritis. And so we really work hard to preserve the meniscus. I think, you know, three quarters of our ACL patients have meniscus repair and only a quarter have meniscectomy. Uh, and part of that rationale is just that the biology is different in kids and adolescents. They've got more vascularity, they've got more cellularity, even within their cells, the cells are more active um, in the meniscus. And so, um, you know, we will repair things that I wouldn't do in, in, a, in an adult, you know, like um, mid-third zone uh, tears, um, 50%, you know, 50% width tears. We will repair those in kids and adolescents, whereas we'd probably take those out in adults. Um, and then it's sort of a combination really of all inside or inside out, just depending on the tear pattern and, and what's what does the best job fixing that meniscus. But I think the bigger point is just in these young patients to try to save the meniscus and you'll get away with things that you wouldn't get away with in, a, in an adult because they have a higher healing potential. All right. Always thinking, always thinking about that with a, with a, with a young patient, just, you can do a lot, but trying to save as much of that meniscal tissue is just so important for their knee in the long run, not only just recovering from their ACL, but preventing them from having arthritis in their thirties or forties. So, you know, anything, but taking out the meniscus is probably better. Agreed. Any role for biologics in, in surgery, PRP, BMAC, augmenting the repair with these injections, microfracture of the notch, maybe if you're not doing an ACL reconstruction to help with the repair, what are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so we do do um, some of that. So we do do some microfracture of the notch if it's not associated with an ACL reconstruction, because we know that meniscal healing rates are higher when associated with an ACL reconstruction. We'll often trephinate the meniscus 
Um, a couple of people in our group um, do a blood clot um, and put the blood clot into the meniscus. Um, we have a, a trial going on with some of our medical sports medicine docs who under ultrasound uh, are doing some PRP injection um, for meniscal healing for stable meniscal tears. So um, that's something we're, we're kind of watching as well. Okay, great. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. That was a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks again for your time. Um, and best of luck to you guys as you come out of COVID. That was awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Sports Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to stay updated on future podcast episodes, please follow us on Instagram at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Like and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. A special thanks to our sponsor, Star Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. This episode was edited by me, Victoria Wickham, and produced by Josh Downs. See you next time on the Sports Medicine Podcast.